0: people taking notes. I was very kind. I didn't break their pen. I broke their knuckles. Now, if you want to take notes, you can take notes. But why do that? It's all written out for you. Relax. Enjoy the Word of God. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, we turn to Acts chapter 20. I said to you last night, this is a very unusual passage. It's the only passage in the New Testament in which the apostle directly exhorts and speaks to the elders of the church. There's really nothing else like it in the New Testament. We'll start at verse 25 for our first message. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will see my face again. Now, that is a key phrase that sets the tone for what follows. Actually, it sets the tone for the entire Uh, address, you will not see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now the exhortation. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is very frightening. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, key term, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Now, this is actually the sixth point, if you have an outline, or if it's on the screen up there, yes, sixth point. Um, Serving as a watchman, teaching the whole counsel of God. Remember, Paul is laying out his model, his example. This is how he lived. This is how he acted. This is what he did in ministry, and he wants them to copy that. Imitation. Now, the Ephesian elders had heard him preach The gospel of the grace of God many times. And as he says here, they heard him speak of the kingdom of God. But all this would now change because, as he says, you will not see my face again. He will not be there to answer questions. He will not be there to teach them and preach them. And that must have been quite a disappointment. These men loved him. They kissed him. They fell on his neck. But you're not going to see me anymore. Therefore... Therefore, in light of the fact that you will not see me again, he says, I testify solemnly before you all that I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, that seems like a strange phrase. I am innocent of the blood of you all. Well, this comes from the Old Testament, the whole idea of the watchmen upon the wall. Now, they didn't have satellites in those days or radar systems, and a city would be protected by a wall. Wall is very important, but there would be watchmen on the wall, and they were there to warn the people of invaders, And if they were sleeping on the job or if they were preoccupied with foolish things and invaders came into the city to steal and plunder and rape and and kidnap, and they didn't warn the people, the consequences were they were to die. They were to give their blood because others have died. But if the watchman, this is from the book of Ezekiel, if the watchman warned the people that the enemy is coming, protect yourself, be prepared, and the people didn't respond to that. Well, they were responsible for their own blood. So Paul is liking himself to a watchman on the wall who says, I am innocent of the blood of you all. If anything happens after I leave, no one can say, you did not tell us the gospel. They cannot say, you did not prepare us for what was ahead. No, they cannot say that. I am innocent of the blood guilt of you. It will be on your own head if you do not respond to the gospel of the grace of God. He was a vigilant watchman. Now, we don't normally use this phrase today, but it's a good phrase. There are people here who are watchmen. I hope there are watchmen here. People who understand the times and will warn the young people and will warn the older people of what is happening in our culture. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So he is a watchman. He's innocent of the blood of all. He can leave with a clear conscience. It's up to them now to protect the church and protect themselves. Now, he says something very interesting that he says twice. And if he says something in this sermon twice, it must be very, very important. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all for reason. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. A little conjunction for introduces a reason. Now, the key phrase, some of your Bibles are going to be different here. I'm going to give you the different translations because it's such an important phrase. The NIV has the whole will of God. The Christian Standard Bible is the whole plan of God. The New American Standard has the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose plan of God. Now, there's two parallel passages here. If you go back to verse 20, Paul said this, and I I spoke of it last night. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Remember that? Remember last night? Remember the good old days? Oh, that was the good old days back last night. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. These were well-trained people. There was going to be no surprises when Paul left. Oh, he didn't tell us this. And of course, I said to you, the false teachers will come, and the first thing they'll say is, well, Paul didn't give you the whole gospel. We'll give you the whole gospel. You have to follow the Torah. You have to be circumcised. This is the whole gospel. He didn't tell you that. No, no, no. Paul said, I didn't hold back anything. You have everything I receive from Christ. Now, parallel statement, verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says basically the same thing. But it's the whole counsel of God that is very, very interesting. Paul was thorough in declaring god's plan these men had the best theological education conceivable by the greatest teacher outside of jesus christ they were prepared so he could say i'm innocent there's no guilt on my mind i gave you everything thoroughly in depth now he says the whole counsel of god this is a very interesting phrase and it should have an impact on us. The term counsel here refers to the divine, sovereign will, purpose, plan of God. God's plans are not capricious or unpredictable like those of the ancient um, Greek gods. They are based on divine intention and determination. God knows the beginning from the end of human history and everything in between because he has determined it. And it unfolds according to his own purpose. Listen to what Isaiah says. For I am God, and there's no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, "My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, that's a trite thing. The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken it, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. That's the God of the Bible. It's the whole counsel of God that he gives. The whole plan, the whole purpose. What is God doing? What does God want? Well, when he says the whole counsel of God, he means Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. All the major Bible doctrines, all the major covenants, the entire storyline of the Bible, it is a storyline. It is a coherent story, a master plan his sovereignty, his redemptive purpose. In the book of Ephesians, he says this, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is not caught off guard. He's not up in heaven going from foot to foot, sweaty palms wondering, how is that happening? He knows the end from the beginning. Now, some people look around today and they say, It's all out of control. Where's God? It's out of control. No, it's not out of control. God's orchestrating the terrible things you see. Because he says in Romans 1, if you give yourself to these sins, I will give you over to them. So what we're seeing in much of our country today is God's active judgment and handing us over to our sins that we want. And one of his punishments is, you can have your sin. You can indulge yourself and eat of it all you want, and then you'll find the consequences. God is not asleep. You know, we have a very serious problem today, and I call it the secular tsunami. It's it's different than the secularism of 40 years ago. It's a new kind of secularism. Very aggressive, very militant, very hateful. As a result... The Bible is for many people, Christian people, a foreign book. They really don't know Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. They don't see how the storyline develops. They don't understand progressive revelation. God is progressively revealing himself in his plan of redemption. It's a foreign book. They don't know how the pieces fit together. We know this from many of the Christian colleges that when students come, they usually come from Christian homes, they give them these tests. And they'll put biblical names like Jeremiah, Abraham, and David, and they ask the students, put them in line. with Adam, you know, who came Abraham, who came next? Most of them can't even do that. Most of them admit they've never really read the Bible or they've just read portions of it. They are biblically illiterate This is a tragic thing. Our young people know more about the stars of Hollywood and their movies than they do about the godly patriarchs of the Bible. In fact, there's something even worse. It's not that they don't even know it. It's that when they read the Bible, they're reading it through secular eyes, and it's pretty disgusting to them. All this killing and murdering and what kind of God would do this kind of thing? They don't understand it. It doesn't fit through their grid, which has been determined by TV and movies and school. That's their philosophy. And then they have their Christian religion on the side, which they don't know very much about. This is a fact. Now what does the watchman do? The watchman puts up the alarm. I hope in this church, that you have the alarm set for our young people, junior high, senior high, that they are being taught what is secularism, what is humanistic secularism, why are we different, why do people hate what we believe, why are we more and more outcasts, why will it be even now but very shortly, some of our beliefs will be criminalized, we will not be able to get jobs unless we make certain affirmations of secular revolutionary sexual uh, a teaching someone needs to set the alarm and tell these young people and tell our our seniors I have a a, a, a chart in my my basement and it's actually where my office is shows you how humble I am my wife's upstairs and I'm in the basement she, she says go to the basement but that's actually very affectionate because she means go study, and she says, I'll, I'll let you free from now. But if you didn't know that, you'd think, well, she's a harsh woman. But go to the basement. Okay. All right, but in my basement, I have this sign. If we don't teach our children to follow Christ, the world will teach them not to. The pressure, the pressure, the cultural pressure on all of us is horrendous today. Secular society is just crushing us with their beliefs. Now, for those who are over 50, it's not a big deal because they're not going to change our mind. They're not going to change my mind. I just laugh at at the foolishness of what I see today and the horror of what will be the consequences. But when you're young, you're impressionable. You're forming your thought life. You're you're forming who you are, what you're going to follow. They're very impressionable, and the world is smart. They're very smart. Do you know know why they're so smart? they got the devil behind them, the doctrine of demons they have behind them, and they're very bold and very brave, very intimidating. We need watchmen. We need watchmen. Every parent should be a watchman, a watchman. And this is why I really, really encourage young people, every day, because the world has Adam most of the time, you must open the word of the Lord and read the word of the Lord so that it determines your thinking problem. Romans 12, 1 and 2, so important today. Do not be conformed to this world. Did you hear what I said? Do not be conformed to this world. That's the big problem young people have. The world is trying to conform them to their way of thinking. And they got a lot of tools to do this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your brain, your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Many young people don't know that. So, he closes this section with declaring I did my job so thoroughly that I'm innocent of your blood. If this church goes to pot, if you elders don't do the job, you cannot turn and say I didn't prepare you. I prepared you. We already read the things he did to prepare them. Now we turn in this sermon to the exhortation and warning. We come now to a direct exhortation It's what he wants to say to them. He's held up now his example. Follow my example. Be imitators of me because I'm imitators of Christ. We're all following someone. Now, he has taught these elders the whole counsel of God. But if they are not vigilant, they could still be deceived and led astray by the master of deception, the archenemy of the church of Jesus Christ, the false teacher. So, although he taught them, they better stay awake. And so that, that's the exhortation. Let's look at the first exhortation. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, I cannot overemphasize this passage. The emphasis, the theological and practical importance... This is an apostolic, prophetic charge, and history demonstrates what has happened to the Christian church when it does not follow this charge. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Wake up, be vigilant, open your eyes, open your ears, be awake. He'll tell you why in a moment. This is a very, very important passage. In fact, I would say this passage is a, a key to church history. When people have not followed what Paul says here, the false teachers take over. We have a real enemy, you know. There's a real war going on. If you don't know about it, read Ephesians chapter six. We're at war with cosmic powers. The forces of darkness in heavenly places. Pretty serious. Now, the first thing he says is pay close attention to yourselves. You could translate this, pay strict attention to yourselves. The verb here is an imperative verb of command. The tense indicates continuous action. In other words, here's what he's saying. Keep a constant watch over yourselves. Don't be inattentive or preoccupied with lesser things. Be watchful, be attentive, be on guard. Be a watchman. The kind of watchman that doesn't Fail the people. Now, don't miss the order of business here. It would be very easy to miss this. Normally, when we come to this passage, we skip right over to pay strict attention to the flock. We think that's the big, the big command. But that's not what he says. Did you see what he says? Pay strict attention to what? Yourselves. If you can't guard yourselves and watch your own soul, soul care... Well, how in the world are you going to watch over other people? So, this makes perfectly good sense. Be attentive to your own spiritual growth, your daily walk with Christ, your moral integrity, your biblical and theological beliefs. This is soul care, self-watch, self-shepherding. Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritan writers in his book, Reformed Pastor, which means reform of the pastors of his day which were becoming very lazy and inattentive to the flock so he means by reformed pastor the name of his book very famous book the pastors need reformation they need to get back to acts 20. that was one of his major points get back to acts 20. so here's what he writes take heed to yourselves because the tempter will make his first and sharpest attack on you the leaders he knows what devastation he is likely to make among the rest if he can make the leaders fall before their eyes. And my, oh my, have we seen a lot of that in the last ten years. An extraordinary amount. He has long practiced fighting neither against great nor small comparatively, but against the shepherds, that he might scatter the flock. Take heed then, for the enemy has a special eye on you, You are sure to have his most subtle insinuations, incessant solicitations, and violent assaults. Take heed to yourself, lest he outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you are and a more nimble disputant. And whenever he prevails against you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. Woo! I guess he got that right. Take down the shepherd and the sheep fall. That's why we have to understand there is really such a thing as spiritual warfare. It's real. And if you don't believe it, go to Ephesians 6, verse 12. And there Paul's, re- here's something very interesting that just came to my mind. Ephesians 6, 12, you have um, Paul speaking about uh, we war against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places this is pretty awesome. Here's something very interesting. Before he gives this warning about spiritual warfare and accentuates who we're fighting against, heavenly forces, dark forces, cosmic forces, intelligent beings, did you notice before that he talks about the husband and wife relationship? He talks about children-parent relationship, master-servant relationship. He goes through all these relationships, and then he goes to spiritual warfare. Because you know what? One of the first things the devil wants to do is ruin your marriage. If he can divide your marriage, divide your family, he's he's created great confusion, and he has hurt many people. And I want to tell you this. I have no question that the, the devil goes after the men. If he can destroy the male, destroy the man, In many senses, he destroys the whole family, ultimately. And that's why we have so many weak men who don't know anything about the Bible, and they're quite willing to let their wife be the teacher of the home and the theologian of the home and the one who feeds the family spiritually. Every night, every night, when our children were living us in the home, every night, 95% faithful, we ate dinner together, and every night, my four daughters watched as I went around the table for prayer requests. They saw their father pray. And then we have a little 10-minute study, not more than that. I wanted them to know I am the spiritual head of this home. I'm the one who will be praying for you all your life. In many homes, it's the woman. If she doesn't do it, no one does it. I've asked many fathers, "I say, you praying for your children? Head goes down. You know, I guess that's the answer don't even pray for their own children. So, first first order of business, pay strict attention to yourselves. I just want to make one side comment here. There's different things I could say to you about how you protect yourself spiritually. But I can't get into all that now. Most of it you should know. But I want to add one, one idea, and it's this idea. Guard yourself against spiritual stagnation by continuing to grow. In other words, if you want to protect yourself spiritually, we can think of a lot of negative things, but the positive way is to keep being a growing Christian, reading, studying, learning, listening to messages, going to conferences, so you're constantly growing. That's the best defense. You're a strong, growing Christian. That's how you guard yourself. Now, pay strict attention to all the flock. Pay careful attention to all the flock. Again, if the leaders don't know spiritual disciplines and spiritual warfare, they're not going to be very good at helping others. If you can't take care of your own garden, you can't take care of someone else's garden. Now, he uses the term flock here. He refers to the local church figure as a flock. Flock of sheep, shop of goat, often very um, uh, common to be mixed. By the term flock, it communicates ownership, dependence, value, and in this context, especially the need for continuous protective care. Sheep, goats need constant care and protection. Now, in the ancient world, a flock of sheep and goats were very valuable. It was a sign of wealth, actually. I think we underestimate this. They were valued for their wool, their milk, their cheese, their meat, their bones, their skin, their leather goods. A flock represents wealth. But this flock is really different because this flock is owned by God. It's the flock of God. It's God's precious possession. It is a flock he bought, he owns, he cares for, he loves. It's of great worth to him. And he expects the shepherds to care for them. And notice all the flock, all the sheep. None are to be neglected. None are to be passed over. It's not just about caring for your friends and your family, but all the people, even those annoying people that you can hardly stand to be with, you have to protect them and care for them. And maybe if you pray for them, you might start liking them a little better. Now, this command is so important that he now gives four reasons why you must guard the flock and guard yourself. The vital importance, the vital important reasons for guarding God's flock. Here's what he says. Guard the flock. Pay strict attention to the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which you obtained with his own blood. Okay? Paul is a great motivator of people. A good leader is a good motivator. Gets people up and going, enthusiastic. Let's go. Well, he was a motivator. Now, if you're a motivator of people, you've got to give people reasons. So let me give you a quick example. Uh, Right near my house, only blocks away, we have a small man-made lake. It's not like out here in Kansas. We have very little lakes. Almost all of them are man-made. So we have this little lake by us, and we do have a lot of different kinds of ducks that, uh, that come to this lake. And they have a big sign up, and the sign says, don't feed the ducks. And there's people out there with bags of grain. They're feeding the ducks. No one watches the sign. So the city fathers got real smart. They said, let's give them some reasons." So they changed the sign, don't feed the ducks. And then they listed bullets why you should not feed the ducks. You hurt their digestive system. You're giving them the wrong food. uh, They won't eat the kind of food they should eat. And they listed all these reasons. Well, guess what happened? People didn't go feed the ducks anymore. You see, even the police couldn't stop them. But once people got reasons, well, that's what Paul's doing here. Care for the flock of God. Let me give you the reasons now. That will motivate you. There are four basic reasons. Number one, the Holy Spirit's appointment. It was the Holy Spirit of God who made them overseers for the purpose of shepherding God's flock. This is a pretty important reason. You do the job because the Holy Spirit's behind it. The Holy Spirit made you to do this. It was the Spirit's doing, the sovereign Spirit's empowerment and motivation and giftedness. So they would do the job. In other words, divine placement, initiative, and design. It wasn't the church. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the missionaries. It was the Holy Spirit who placed them to do this job. And you better listen to the the Spirit. In fact, the only men we want as leaders and pastors of our church are people that the Spirit of God has put in their heart to do this. You know, people have often want to get into leadership for very bad reasons. Some people are egomaniacs, and they feel they need to be in control. Some people are control freaks. Other people have completely misconceptions of who they are. And so you will have people push their way into leadership. And, and some people may be very charismatic. You might say, oh, that's a natural leader. But God the Holy Spirit didn't send them. The Holy Spirit of God gives the desire, the motivation, the love, the strength, the gifting to do the job. And those are the people we want. And you have every right to say no to someone that you cannot see the Spirit of God working in their life to place them in the position of oversight of your church. You have every right. To say, I do not see any evidence that God the Holy Spirit is working in this man's life. It's it's self motivated. Now, the Holy Spirit placed them, set them, appointed them as overseers. Now, I, I just want to make a, a brief comment. We could talk a lot about this. He calls the elders of the church, right? But then he says, the Holy Spirit doesn't say major elders. I would think he would say that because he already said he called the elders, summoned them, and then he says he made you overseers. So this is one proof out of others that overseers and elders are the same group of people with two different names. Now, the two different names have a purpose. Each name of this group of people, a plurality of elders, a plurality of overseers, has a different uh, emphasis and, and function. In fact, overseer stresses function. Elder emphasizes dignity, personhood. So the word overseer, a very common word in the ancient world, conveys the idea of someone who watches over. Probably the closest um, um, uh, English um, translation would be a superintendent, an official guardian, a person with authority and responsibility. So the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Superintendents. But in verse 17, he says, elder. There, the idea is the characteristics of maturity, experience, wisdom, character, community leadership. So each word will contribute to who our leaders are. Again, overseer stresses official oversight, guardianship, supervision. Now, the Holy Spirit of God set overseers. Did you catch that? He called the elders. Why didn't he call the pastor of the church? Did he forget? It's interesting. The Holy Spirit never appointed one person over the church. You notice that? Holy Spirit only appointed plural leadership, He appointed overseers. Multiple overseers. So, we have more eyes, more ears. It's one very practical reason for the plurality of overseers is for better protection of the local church from fierce wolves. This is a biblical doctrine. It was lost for many, many years. It's being revived more and more. That the church should be led by a plurality of elders. Plurality of elders. Overseers. There's no proof of one person running a local church. Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas started those first churches. They appointed a, a, a body of elders, a council of elders. Now, among the elders, there's diversity of giftedness and calling, but a church should be run by a plurality of overseers. Now, the Holy Spirit himself appointed these elders <clears throat> as overseers for a purpose, an express purpose, and that is to shepherd the church of God. Or, really contemporary, to pastor the church of God. Now, I'm using the English Standard Version, and I don't know if the translators went out for a cup of coffee, whether they just were just worn out at the end of the day, and they just wrote down what came to their mind, but they made a big mistake here. The Greek words, Everyone knows this that knows anything about this passage. It's shepherd, not care for. Care for is an aspect of shepherding. Shepherding is a much bigger concept. It includes feeding. It includes protecting, leading, and all the care for duties. It includes those four aspects. So shepherd should be the word. If your Bible has shepherd, you're right on target. So here's, here's just what he's saying. Uh, You men better pay attention to the flock because the Holy Spirit of God sets you there as overseers for the express purpose to shepherd these people. Get on with the job. Do the job. I'm leaving and I leave these people into your care to shepherd them. Now, this group of people, they are to shepherd. The nature of the flock is the church of God. They are to shepherd pastor the church of god no ordinary group of people the local church does not belong to the elders the apostles martin luther john calvin john wesley or any other individual or denomination it is the church of god his possession, called this company of people into existence. He is the one who sustains it, provides for it, cares for it. He purchased it. It's the church of God. That's how important these people are. Then, very similar, he goes on to say, the immense value of the church of God. They are to shepherd the church of God, the church that belongs to God, his possession, which he obtained with his own blood. Or we can translate it, the blood of his own one. That's much better, Jesus Christ. The blood of his own one. Now, listen to what he's saying there. You are to care for these blood-bought people. He bought these people with the blood of his own one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. David Gooding says this, with this we touch the mainspring of all true defense and shepherding of the church, the cost at which God bought it. What's the cost? In an incalculable price, God acquired this group of people, right here, by means of the shed blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. By blood of The apostle means death, but he means much more than death. More specifically, he means shed blood, sacrificial death. This is a a, a life violently taken away from Christ at the cross. It's the entire Old Testament system coming to this one word, blood. What he's saying in the Old Testament, blood stands for the sacrificial, or actually the slaughter of an animal, the shedding of blood Ephesians 1:7 we have redemption through his blood and that means the whole cross the whole self sacrifice the giving of himself 1 Corinthians 5:7 Christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed That's what he's talking about, a sacrificial lamb. Isaiah puts it this way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. The glorious theme of heaven, the angelic choir is, worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain. Notice that. Sacrificial slaughter. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. How could God have paid more for the church? He couldn't. Now, there's a great application here because we do get discouraged with one another, don't we? We wonder, these people, if you knew what I had to put up with, oh, my. How can they be this dumb? So rebellious. Here's something to remember. their are blood bought. He paid for these people. With his own blood. And someday, Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to clear up the whole mess and present us a glorious bride without spot or out wrinkle. Only the blood of Christ can do that. I mean, really, we're a mess. You go around the different churches. We're so dysfunctional. So many churches are sick, dysfunctional, so many problems and splits, and you say, oh, what a mess. But the Lord will win in the end, and he will bring us to himself A glorious bride, a glorious bride. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Never forget the price paid. This will help you when you deal with people. And some people can really, really get on your nerves. Some people just do the same old dumb thing again and again. You have to remember, they're still God's blood-boiled people. Next reason for shepherding the church of God. Fierce wolves are coming. Fierce wolves are coming. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Weighing heavily on Paul's heart was the imminent danger to his dear friends of what would happen when he would leave. The wolves are just waiting for Paul to leave. Notice what he says. I know. I know. He doesn't say, I think, possibly, maybe, who knows what will happen in the future. No, I know. That after my departure, those fierce wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Paul didn't say, when I leave, things are going to get better. Or, your best days are ahead. Don't be overly concerned and worry. Instead, on the contrary, he warns them. He shakes them and wakes them. That they realize there is a battle ahead. There are wolves ahead. Someone has said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Paul is preparing them. He's making them ready for what will happen. That's why this passage is an apostolic, prophetic word. And that's why I said to you at the beginning of uh, of verse 28, this is like a chart of the future of church history. Wolves are coming. I know. I've seen it. Every church I've been to, Paul would say was attacked by the Judaizers, the intruders, the wolves. Now, since it's a flock, the enemy, of course, would most uh, accurately be described as wolves. These intruders are like a pack of ravenous wolves, intent on devouring the sheep. Wolves are strong and they're cunning hunters. They have bravado. They are persistent and seem to have boundless energy. They are insatiable and merciless. That's what's coming. They're not nice guys. Now, who are these wolves? He actually does not tell us who the wolves are. So I would make two guesses. One is the Judaizers. These are the Jewish people who come around with their works based Torah-keeping gospel. We see them in Galatia. We see them in Acts 15. And these are the people that come around when Paul leaves, and he says, oh, this is wonderful, wonderful. You have me believe in the Messiah, but you must be circumcised. You must keep the law of Moses. You must be under the covenant of Moses. And they had the Old Testament. They could show from the Old Testament. But remember, Paul said, I didn't hold back anything. I gave you the whole counsel of God. The other and the more likely one is the government officials. Now, you have to remember this that in the Greco-Roman world, the government was completely linked to the religion of the Roman um, uh, Empire because they were very proud of their pantheon of gods, Zeus and Hermes and all these great stories of of their their ancestry. And so religion and uh, government all went hand in hand. And so when a person became a Christian, it meant he left the gods of Rome. And the government didn't like that. And they weren't going to worship the emperor, and they were going to offer incense to the emperor. That was done. They'll die first. So the government gave them a lot of trouble. The Roman government persecuted Paul, persecuted the Christians, and we know from the second century tremendous persecution by the government. And one of the reasons was the Christians had a different religion. And it's a religion that ate flesh and ate blood, as far as they were concerned. And, and a Jewish messiah. Who wants a Jewish messiah? We want a Roman general. We want a, a, a guy on a white horse with a big sword and an army. Not a Jew being crucified by Romans. That I, I can't be the savior. Now, I would think the modern day analogy today would be secularism. The secular philosophy of our day is infiltrating our churches, our homes, aided by the internet, social media, TV, movies, advertisement, schools, books, even some preachers. Then he says, false teachers from within, false teachers from within. This is more frightening. Even more subtle and frightening than wolves from outside the flock, from among your own selves. That would include the elders will arise men speaking. Now, here's the key term. Twisted things. Twisted thing. Mark that. Perverse things. To draw away the disciples after them. So they want disciples. No, we're disciples of Jesus Christ. No, they want disciples. You, you watch some of these TV preachers. That's what they want. Disciples. Send in your money. Send in as quickly as you can. Now, I want to just point up here that they distort and pervert apostolic orthodox doctrine, the standard of truth. So you can't have twisted things if you don't have the standard. So the standard, the the orthodox doctrine of the faith comes from the apostles, authorized by Jesus Christ. Now these teachers, they take the standard of the gospel Of the apostle. And what do they do? They twist it. They turn it into knots. That even the most learned people can hardly dissect. They tie true teachings into complex knots. They are slippery creatures who cannot be easily pinned down. They are experts in double talk and diversion. You cannot have an honest conversation with these people because they lack intellectual honesty. They're masters of subtlety and novelty. False teachers mix truth with error. They confuse people with half-truth and complex ideas. And behind it all is the evil one himself, the master of distortion. These twisted, teachings are all around us, all around us. One of the most popular today is the health and wealth gospel. It's all over Africa, all over South America. It's all over the TV, promising people health and wealth. Well, who doesn't want health and wealth? I would like health and wealth. But to get health and wealth, they twist, they distort, they turn around what God says. They go to a little Old Testament verse here, a little verse here, put it together, and you will be wealthy. Of course, only one person is getting wealthy and the rest are getting poorer. And then the other twisted teaching today by born-again Christians, supposedly, well-known preachers, one I could mention that most of you should know, who have joined the sexual revolution, and they are marrying now Men to men and women to women because God never condemned that. He only condemned, you should know, of of Christian leaders. And this is growing. Just like feminism just increased so greatly in the last 25 years, this is now increasing among Bible-believing Christians. It's twisting, twisting the scriptures. This is the whole basis of, of, of liberalism. John uh, um, Robinson, Bishop of Woolwick, uh, uh, wrote a very famous book called Honest to God. It was Very, very famous, in fact, people said to John Stott, why don't you uh, uh, debate uh, Bishop Robinson? And John Stott said, no, they're slippery creatures. It would, nothing would be accomplished, nothing would be accomplished. You cannot get an honest, straight line discussion. They will twist everything. Bishop Robinson of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, the official Church of England, official bishop, he rejects the whole idea of God up there in heaven. There's no God out there up in heaven. Rather, God must be understood from an existential theology like the theology of Paul Tillich. God is the ground of our being. God is the ground of our being. That's what Dr. Tillich taught at Harvard. Do you want to know what the ground of our being is? I don't know. It sounds cool and very intellectual. I have no idea that God is the ground of our being. Uh, Dr. Tillich and uh, Robinson said, we need, for secular people, we need a secular theology. God reveals himself In the ever-changing culture. Do you want to know who God is? He reveals himself as culture changes. Slippery creature, isn't he? This promoted situational ethics. His theology is non-theistic. Post-Christian. Bishop Robinson said, God... Remains as a symbolic term referring to all that transcends us, providing unity to the universe we live in. Instead of God, let's speak of life. Millions of people are in these kind of churches, millions. They're theology without a God. A Savior without a cross. We have so many of these twisted, distorted representations of Christianity. So you know what Paul says? Better stay awake. So that brings us to our last point here, which I will end with. Let me see. Let's take our break now, and I'll I'll start with be alert, be ready to act. Is that okay? You're the boss. I'm the humble man. You're the big man. Okay. What should we do? Thank you. Lord, thank you for these prophetic words from your chosen apostle. May we take them to heart and be alert and be ready. Be watchmen on the wall and not fall asleep. In the name of our Lord, amen.